for our adult Sunday school today. Uh, I'll be teaching out of chapter three of the book that we're going through in our book study, which is Trusting God. And if you're not in a book group, it's not too late to join, and I would encourage you to join one if you're not in one. Uh, my group has had encouraging discussions, and it's a good, good time of fellowship, and it's a good book to read as well. So that's my encouragement for you this morning. In chapter 1 and 2, we laid the foundation of the book, and we saw that God is trustworthy and that God is in control. And in chapter 3, we're going to be looking specifically at God's sovereignty. Now, before I pray, I'm just going to say one thing. Chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 are also going to deal with God's sovereignty, but in specific instances, in specific areas of his sovereignty, dealing with people, nations, nature, and God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So if you have questions about those four categories, you can save them for those chapters. And whoever teaches those chapters gets to answer those hard questions. But I'll answer any of your questions today regarding what I'm talking about. So before I start, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you are indeed God and that you are sovereign over all the universe, over all things that come to pass, for you have ordained them and you have ordained them for our good because you are a good and loving God. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we look at your sovereignty that you would help us to have humble hearts and open minds to what your word teaches us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe all the things that you have given to us in your word, for you've given them to us for our comfort and for our hope. And we pray that you would humble us as we look at your absolute sovereignty over all things. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of words of caution here and encouragement as we look at God's sovereignty, because this can be a very difficult subject to understand and wrap our heads around. And in fact, in some ways, we can't wrap our heads around this subject. In uh, the, the first thing we need to do when we're talking about difficult things is we need to check our own attitude. And Francis Turretin in his Institutes of Electric Theology says this. He's, he's defending the use of reason against some who would, who would say that we shouldn't uh, deduce things from Scripture. But he says this about reason, that it has its limits. He says, reason must not be listened to when it complains of not being able to comprehend the mysteries of faith. For how can the finite comprehend the infinite? And one of the things that's helped me is to remember that, but also an analogy that I shared in my group on Saturday, or Friday night, rather. Uh, if we could somehow speak to a worm... Right, A worm is a totally different type of creature than we are. It doesn't have arms. It doesn't have legs. It can't see. It's different than us. But if we could somehow speak to a worm and try to explain what we are to a worm, it might be able to somehow understand some things about us. But it would not be able to understand everything about us because we're a different type of being than they are. And in the same way, God is a different type of being than we are. And when he speaks to us, he condescends to our understanding. He speaks to us in ways that we can understand something about him. 
but we cannot understand everything about him because he's a different type of being. And so that's something that we need to keep in mind as we're talking about God's sovereignty over all things. Turretin also says this. He says, if we cannot find a way to reconcile an apparent contradiction, because there are no contradictions in Scripture, if we cannot find a reconcile, reconcile an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is always wiser to acknowledge our own ignorance than to assume Scripture is wrong. So we should always assume that Scripture is right, and there's something wrong with our thinking, or we're trying to understand something that God has not given to us to fully understand. And then lastly, an encouraging word, as we go through this lesson, keep in mind what Romans 15.4 says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So as we look at the doctrine of God's sovereignty and we learn about it, if it doesn't lead us to hope, that does not mean there's something wrong with that doctrine. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with Scripture. It means there's something wrong with us and the way that we're thinking about this. Because when we read the Bible, it's given to us so that we can have hope. Okay, so now we're going to actually get into what the book teaches. The first point is that God is absolutely in control of all things. All things come to pass because God has ordained them to come to pass. And there's three things that we learned in the previous chapters. The first is that we must trust that God is sovereign. Secondly, we must trust God in times of adversity. And thirdly, we must trust that God is wise and loving. And of these three things, Trusting God in times of adversity and trusting that God is wise and loving are probably the easiest things to do. The one that seems to get questioned the most or challenged the most in our minds is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Andrew Murray wrote one of the more common objections to God's sovereignty. He, he writes this, In creating man with a free will and making, and making him a partner in the rule of the earth, God limited himself. Hey, that should strike you as wrong. He continues, he made himself dependent on what man would do. That should strike you as really, really wrong. Man, by his prayer, would hold the measure of what God could do in blessing. Okay, there's nothing biblical about what he just said. So another argument that is made sometimes is this. And it's just kind of a failure to acknowledge that God is in control of all things. It's, well, things just happen by chance. And just circumstances just are outside of our control. And it's just kind of a failure to acknowledge that God actually is God. And that he actually ordains all things. So how do we respond to these arguments? Well, first of all, we need to know what's in the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and draw our beliefs from that. Secondly, we need to remember that the degree to which we believe that God is sovereign will have a direct impact on how much we trust him. If there is a single event, or what R.C. Sproul said, if there's a single molecule that is outside of God's control, if there's a single event that can occur that is outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him at all. He may love us infinitely, 
and he may want the best for us. But if he lacks even one ounce or one gram of power to control history, his purposes may fail for us. We may not make it to heaven because God is not in control. And that is not a God, number one, that's not a God of the Bible, and that is not a God who can be trusted either. Thankfully, that is not our God. If you give me something that is very precious to you, and you ask me to keep it for you and keep it safe, make sure no one takes it, this is very valuable, I may do everything in my power to keep it for you, but I may fail because I'm just a man. In that sense, I cannot be fully trusted at all. God is not a man. He is God, and he can be fully trusted. And we must fully trust him because we know that that is true. Paul also argues in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Paul, he's suffering. We know what Paul suffer, Paul's sufferings were. He was shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's been cold, he's been hungry, he's been destitute. And yet, despite all of this, he says he is able to trust God with his eternal salvation. If God is able to guarantee our eternal salvation, is he not able to guarantee all things and to control all things? Fourthly, the scriptures teach that God ordains all things, both good and evil, and all of these are in accordance with his sovereign will. Now, in our book, the, the author uses the word permit, says that he permits bad things to happen. And I'm not a big fan of that word. If by permission we mean ordains, then I'm all for it. Go ahead and use that word. But we don't want to have two categories in our mind. We don't want to have, these are the things that God has ordained, and these are the things that God permits. It's not two different categories. God has ordained all things. So if you want to use the word permit, it would be like a circle with a line through it, and on the left is red, and these are the things that God has ordained, and on the right it's blue. These are the things that God's ordained except in blue. Okay, because God ordains all things. So if, if, if you want to use the word permission, it's fine. There are theologians who have used that word, A.A. A. Hodge and others. Uh, but him specifically, he says, he uses that term to describe the actions that God has ordained of free agents doing things contrary to his revealed will. So he permits men to, to commit evil. But those things are ordained by him. Now let's look at the scriptures, because we want to see this in the scriptures. Proverbs 16.9, you don't need to turn there, because we're going to go through several of them pretty fast. But Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So men act, but God has ordained their actions. Proverbs 19.21 says, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. So men act, and yet no matter what they do, God's purpose will be accomplished. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Or in other words, when God acts, no one can stop him, and no one can thwart his purposes. 
Lamentations 3.37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? We make plans, but they only succeed if the Lord has ordained it. No man, no matter what kind of power and authority he has, can affect his purposes unless God has decreed that it will happen. And that is why we know that we can trust God in all circumstances, because he has ordained all the good things that happen, and he has ordained all of the bad things that happen. If we are in dire straits, it is because, and listen carefully to this, if we're in dire straits, it's because the Lord who loves us and who is doing, working all things for good has ordained it to happen for us. This can be a difficult teaching to accept, but the alternative is far worse. If there are bad things happening to us, it's because of fate. That's far worse. If there are bad things happening to us, it's because God's not in control. He wishes that these things wouldn't happen to you, but he gives us free will. Well, how can we derive any comfort from the Lord if things are happening to us contrary to what his will is? And sometimes the only thing we can cling to is that God is sovereign and he has brought these difficulties into our life. Now, when I say that all things happen, what I really mean is all things that happen. So the car accident that you got in, or the job that you lost, or the cancer diagnosis that you have, or the supervisor at work who blames you for his failures and prevents you from getting promoted or stubbing your toe. Everything that happens, happens because the Lord has brought it into our lives. And we have biblical examples of bad things happening to people and the Lord ordaining it. Paul was in prison for two years simply because Felix wanted to please the Jews. Joseph was forgotten. He was left to rot in a prison for two years because the cupbearer forgot him. God ordains all things, meaning the insignificant things all the way to earth-shaking events. Matthew 10.29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? So even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from God's will. And Christ could not have been crucified if it had not been granted by God. In John 19, verses 10 through 11, then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? What does Jesus say? He says, You could not have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And like I said before, this doctrine should give us hope. Whether we're diagnosed with cancer or whether we experience the minor irritations of everyday life, we know it is God himself who's ordained these things because he is a good God and he is working all things for good. He brings bad things into our life into our life out of his infinite love for us and his will that we be conformed to the image of his son. The alternative is to resign ourselves to fate or to chance or to good or bad luck. Any questions so far about what I've said? Yeah, Linda. Um, 
I agree with everything you said. I think the difficult thing about God's sovereignty when bad things happen to people is that God is not the author of sin. And that's what's hard to understand. How does he ordain something, yet not be the author of sin? Yes. So the question is, how can God ordain evil and yet also not be the author of sin? So the first thing I would say is that sin is not like a blob of thing that was created and then put into people, right? The second thing I would say is that the author of sin might be an unfortunate term that we use. Uh, what we probably should say is that God is not culpable of sin, right? He can't tempt any man. He doesn't do evil. And so in that sense, he is not culpable of any kind of sin. And yet he has ordained that sinful things happen. And the most sinful thing happen that has ever happened in the entire universe was ordained by God. And if we look at Acts 2.23, we see Peter there preaching, and he says, you took Christ and crucified him. And he says, you're responsible for this lawless act that God himself foreknew and ordained. And so in that one verse, we see that God ordains evil acts, and yet men are also responsible for those evil acts. And that's one of those things where we have to bow our head in humility and say, we don't understand how exactly this works, right? That is one of, that is one of the hardest topics to understand, and it's something that we will not I don't think we'll ever be able to comprehend how that actually works. But we know that that is taught in the Bible. We know that men are going to be held responsible for their sinful acts, and yet God is holy and is not culpable for those things. Any other questions? And we are going to talk about that more in more detail in chapter 7 of the book. Okay, so let's continue. The second main point is that God's sovereignty is not always apparent in our life. And this is one of the difficult things that we tend to have with the idea of God's sovereignty is that we don't see him doing things that we think need to be done. We don't see how this leads to this, to this, to this, and that God is glorified in it. And sometimes we will never see that until we're in glory. We see injustices all around the world. We see problems in our everyday life. We see wicked people prospering and seemingly having wonderful lives and yet they're evil people. An example of this might be we, we get in a car accident and we question, why, why did this happen to me? Why didn't God prevent this from happening? Why didn't he intervene? One of the things that we need to understand is God is most ordinarily working, so to speak, behind the scenes in our lives. And a great example of this is the entire book of Esther, the book of the Bible that does not mention the name of God is given to us so that we can understand how God intervenes on behalf of his people. So we're not going to go through the whole story, but in chapter 6 is the turning point of the book. And remember, Haman was elevated to this high position in, in, the, uh, in the kingdom. And he, Mordecai decides he's not going to bow down to him. He's acting righteously. And Haman hates him. And he decides, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And so he has this plot to kill the Jews, and he makes this gallows so that he can hang Mordecai on it. And then the following happens. One night, 
King Ahasuerus is unable to sleep. And so he asks for uh, something boring to be read to him, right? So he asks for the chronicles of his reign to be uh, read to him. And my wife can relate a lot to this because she finds history very boring. And so it puts her to sleep almost immediately. Like if she's not sleeping and I say, hey, in 1622, and she's out like that. (laughs) So he asks for the chronicles to be read. And he hears the story of Mordecai revealing this assassination plot. And he says, was Mordecai ever honored for this? And it turns out he wasn't. So the king decides that Mordecai is going to be honored for what he's done. And you know the rest of the story. Haman comes in. He's all proud. The king asks, what should we do to Mordecai to honor him? And he's shocked. And Haman is hanged. And the Jews are saved because the king issues another decree saving them. And here's all the things that had to have happened. All the little things in history that had to have happened. First of all, the king couldn't sleep. Just, it just so happened on that night that the king couldn't sleep. Then he just happens to ask for the chronicles to be read to him. And it just so happens that when the, the guy opens the chronicles, he opens to that section about Mordecai. And then it just so happens that Mordecai, since that day that he saved the king, had never been honored for it. And it just so happens that Haman had built a gallow to hang Mordecai on. And it just so happens that the king determines that now is the time I'm going to honor Mordecai. And then it just so happens that Haman comes in and gets hanged by the king. All of that happened just by chance, right? Or maybe it's that there is an almighty God who is sovereign over the universe, who is working all things for good to those who love him. That is the answer. And that, and that is the answer. God is working behind the scenes to save his people. And this is what, this is what we read in Romans 8.28 that I just quoted. And this is why in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we, uh, we are exhorted by Paul, we're commanded by Paul to give thanks in all circumstances. And just as an aside, if you're unthankful, it's because you're not trusting in God's sovereignty. The third main point is that God does what he pleases. And we've seen that no man can act outside of God's sovereign will. But it's also true that nobody can act in a way that thwarts God's plan because he is sovereign and does what he pleases. We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures right now that teach us this. So Job 42.2 says, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. In Psalm 115.3, we read, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases if man will let him do it. Okay, so that, that last part is not there. But that's what we would like to read sometimes, right? That, that is people who are dead set against the sovereignty of God just cross that verse out, right? God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 14 27 says, For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah 43.13 says, Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Isaiah 46.10 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Daniel 4.35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Remember, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, who had just been restored to sanity after being turned into a cow, basically. And then Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of these wills, of his will. All of these scriptures show us that nobody can change what God has ordained. If he wants to do something, he's going to do it, and no one can change that. No one can thwart it. No one's purposes will overturn what God is going to do. And this is important for us, because if God has a plan and can carry out that plan, then he indeed can be trusted. If he can't, then even our very prayers are futile. If God cannot carry out his plans, you have no reason to pray. That is not a God you can trust. But thank God that he is God, and he can carry out that plan. And his plan is to conform us to the image of his son, Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And like I said before, it can be difficult, however, to appreciate the reality of this because we often don't see what God is working behind the scenes. However, God's plan is as certain as his plan was for Joseph. Right? We recently, Titi recently taught and actually went through that story of Joseph, but you know, Joseph is sold by his brothers because he was pretty foolish, really. He did a lot of things to make his brothers, or to fan the, the fury of his brothers against him by boasting about his dreams and his, his coat of many colors and all that. So he's sold as a slave, and, and uh, then he ends up in prison, and he's forgotten about in prison for a couple of years, and then he's brought into Egypt. And as a result of all of this suffering that Joseph has gone through, the people of Israel are saved. They're brought into Egypt during the famine. They become a great people, and we know the rest of the story. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the lesson. God gave us everything in Scripture that we might have hope. You know, we don't, we don't know what Joseph was thinking about, what Joseph was feeling exactly when he's sitting there rotting in prison after being forgotten. But I'm sure he went through some pretty dark days there in prison, right? And yet the Lord worked all of that for his good. And so when we are in the midst of dark days, just like Joseph, we can count on God that he is going to work it for our own good. God is never surprised by what happens to us. You know, when the doctor tells you that you have cancer and it's stage four, God is not going, oh, I didn't know about that. God doesn't say, if only I had known this, or I, if I had only known that that was going to happen, I would have changed it. And the book of Ruth demonstrates this to us. God worked 
in just ordinary circumstances to accomplish his own will. Remember that Ruth was the widowed daughter of Naomi. And there are really four key events that happen in Ruth's life. So she, she goes to uh, Boaz's field, and she chooses to, to glean in Boaz's field. She could have chosen any, any field, but she just happened to choose Boaz's field that day, right? And Boaz just happened to be coming into that field at the same time, just, just by chance, right? Just by chance. And he also just happened to notice Ruth on that day. And then he just happened to ask the people working in the field, who's, who's this woman? And they tell, her who, who, tell him who she is. And then Ruth found favor in Boaz's eyes. And then, you know, you know the rest of the story, they get married and they, they have children. And that preserves the Davidic line. Then these are just ordinary, just everyday events. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's not even as extraordinary as the book of Esther is, right? These are just normal, ordinary things that happen. And yet God was, God had ordained that those things would happen in order to preserve the Davidic line. Now we've talked about two stories, three stories that have happy endings, Joseph, Esther, and Ruth. But God also works in circumstances that, from our perspective, don't have happy endings, right? In Amos 3.6, it states, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, one of the things that we tend to want to do when we're talking about sinful events, evil things, bad things that happen, is we we tend to want to shield God from being responsible for these things. And that's why people say, well, God's in control, but he's not sovereign. Or God is in authority, but he doesn't control everything that happens. You know, he, he didn't want this terrible thing to happen. But we just read in the Bible that God says, I do these things. I create calamity. If there is a calamity in this city, will not the Lord have done it? Amos 3.6 is still in the Bible. And so we have to do something with those verses. Specifically, that's something we have to do is we have to believe them. God does not shy away from asserting his absolute sovereignty over all things, even the bad things that happen. And like I said, the worst event in history, the most sinful evil act in history was ordained by God, and that is the death of his son. And what good has come from that? An immeasurable amount of good has come from that. Your salvation has come from the most evil, wicked thing that could have ever been committed by man. Nothing else even compares. Think about all the evil things that men have committed in history. Doesn't even touch killing the Holy Son of God. Okay, I got sidetracked a little bit there. In Acts 12, uh, we read about Peter and James. 
And James is put to death. For whatever reason, Peter is not. He's thrown in prison, and then he's released. Both of those acts were, were ordained by God. And if we put ourselves in the position of the wives of Peter and James, both of them can trust that God is sovereign and good and holy and working all things according to his will for their good. James's wife is mourning. Peter's is rejoicing. One wife is sad because her husband is dead, and the other one is thankful that her husband's been released from prison. One of them may not understand why God did exactly what he did. The other one is just thankful for it. But we can still trust God that he is working all things for us, whether good things happen to us or bad things happen to us. We often find it difficult to trust God in difficult times, but we do need to learn to do so. Trusting God happens one event at a time, one circumstance at a time, one hour at a time. Sometimes it's just one minute at a time. We need to remind ourselves that we need to trust God. And trusting God is not a matter of our feelings. It's a matter of our will. Think about when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. On that, that night when he's betrayed and he knows what he's going to go through. And he is in excruciating distress over what he is about to experience. He is in so much distress that he has a physical response to it. He is sweating blood. And he prays to his father that this cup would pass from him. And yet he also is able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord Jesus Christ was trusting in God's sovereignty. He didn't want to go through the cross. He asked to not go through the cross. And yet he was also able to say, not my will, but yours be done. God is sovereign and we must believe in his absolute sovereignty if we are going to trust him. If we're going to face adversity in a godly way, we have to trust in his sovereignty. If we're going to glorify him in our lives, we need to trust in his sovereignty. And when we face adversity, our typical response is something like this. How can I get out of this as fast as possible? Right? That's our natural human response. And yet, and it's not wrong to want to be out of adversity. We read all throughout the Psalms, the psalmists were all, they were praying that God would deliver them from their distresses, deliver me from the hands of my enemies. How many times do, do we read that in the Psalms? So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. We do want to be delivered from difficult and, and harmful circumstances. And yet, that should not necessarily be our number one priority. <clears throat> Our number one priority should be to learn how to trust God in the midst of that adversity. How can we become thankful when we're going through difficulties? How can we glorify God when we're, going, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Too often, our attitude is to get relief from our problems and not learn from our problems. And yet... How many times have you gone through something really, really difficult and learn 
so much about the Lord in that time. Usually when we go through the darkest valleys, that's when we learn the most about who God is and how much he loves us and we grow. Sometimes we have to be thrown into the furnace that's been heated seven times hotter than usual to experience how God protects us from those flames and how much he loves us. I realize for some this might be a big, difficult pill to swallow, but my encouragement for you is to study the scriptures. Study them and ask the Lord to help you understand as much as you possibly can about his sovereignty. Meditate on these things. Meditate on his sovereignty and let the Lord build up your faith in him. Are there any questions? Dennis. Just a couple of things. One is uh, what helps me in this area is to turn to Isaiah 55 where he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Mm-hmm. The heavens are higher than the earth or are my ways higher than your ways. And, uh, and that helps. And then another thing that I'm thinking about, maybe some of the theologians would disagree with me, but God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. That's what Paul says. He's not ashamed of it because his righteousness is revealed there. And that's what I do when I wonder about these things. I just run to Jesus and think about what he did and how he suffered. He was marred more than any man. And uh, God allowed all of that, you know. And so his righteousness, Paul's happy to proclaim it because it's revealed there. Yeah, yeah, good thoughts. Any other? Yes, Scott. Um, I assume you're trying to buy just a little bit of time. So can I share something Sure. <laughs> so um, I had I was in Germany. I had preached on Job on that Sunday, and um, later that week, and I don't remember how many days later it was that uh, we were trying to travel to um, Paris as a family, and Jim and Norma were there. And um, so when you think about Job, you think about the sovereignty of God and, and what God was doing in. Job's life and all the drama that and pain that it brought. And um, something happened on that trip that never happens in Germany, and that was that a train was late. Trains are never late. And our train arrived at the one station when we were supposed to be getting on the train at the next station. And my first response to the stress of that situation was an inappropriate um, understanding of dealing with the sovereignty of God because I had just preached on it. So I knew that God was sovereign and that there was that this late train was not outside of his control. And yet my initial response was something along the lines of trying to figure out um, you know what God, God better, there better be some kind of wreck down the line or there better be some kind of thing that I can figure out for why my life is not smooth and perfect and lovely and wonderful. Um, instead of uh, what I think the correct response is when we face adversity, it's not only just acknowledging uh, the sovereignty of God in it, but allowing that to give us a calm peace um, and, um, and, and finding a rest in that and not trying to figure out the details. Um, and a similar thing happened, too, when we lost our first child in, in miscarriage. Um, not, not our first child, but the first miscarriage. 
Um, and, you know, even then I had strong Reformed theology. I understood the sovereignty of God. But I just couldn't figure out why this happened to me and what I was supposed to do with the pain of the emotions. And so um, I think it's helpful for us to reflect, even as um, cold Reformed Presbyterians, to, to think about... Um, not just that he is sovereign, but how that impacts our, our thought and our rest in him, and not just um, trying to figure out what, what God's great plan is in a way that's helpful. Yeah, you know, Job, when you read through the book of Job, uh, Job gets this great explanation of why all that happened at the end of it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's something that we learn from the book of Job, is that God is, does not owe us an explanation. You know, he lost... Almost everything. He, he lost everything but his life. And God never explained it to him. And so that's another big, hard pill to swallow for us. But it is something that we need to learn is that God does not always explain to us why the things that happen to us have happened. He gives us one important explanation. And that's Romans 8.28, that all things happen for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. Right? And that we should be content with that. We should be content with what the Lord has given to us. And a lot, of, a lot of theological errors come from people trying to explain things that the Lord has not given to us. The secret things belong to the Lord. What's been revealed belongs to us. And this is one of those areas of theology where we can really run amok by going beyond what the scriptures give us. So are there any questions now? I actually did intend to give a little bit of room for questions because I thought there might be some. <laughs> I wasn't just buying time. No questions. Amazing. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are a good and loving, merciful God. We thank you that you have indeed ordained all things according to your purpose and that you've ordained all these things for our good. And we ask you, Lord, to humble us, uh, under your word, as we look at your sovereignty, as we think and meditate on these things today, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would build up our faith and help us trust you, uh, for you are indeed our Savior, you are our God, and you do work all things for our good. And we ask you to bless the rest of our day, bless the preaching of your word and the services to follow. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.